0: Hi, hey Mary. How are you getting on?
1: Yeah, good. Thanks, Dan. Good weekend.
0: Yes, it was good. Thanks. Yeah, really good. I mean, love the weather. Any big changes to your day to day now that we've got a bit more relaxation of some of the rules?
1: Yeah, a bit more flexibility. I'm looking forward to meeting up with more than one friend at a time, actually. Yeah, cycling across London to meet at a convenient place.
0: Yeah, because you're quite a big cyclist anyway, aren't you?
1: Yeah. So usually cycle to work. So I've been missing-ish, missing my daily commute, but choosing a nicer route and doing it leisurely is much nicer. And the weather obviously has been fantastic. So can't complain.
0: Yeah. Lovely way to get around, isn't it? I think bikes have been a big popular purchase item, haven't they, in the last few weeks. So
1: A lot of my friends are now scrabbling around trying to find a bike and struggling to buy one. So yeah, high demand.
0: So you weren't rushing to join the queues outside IKEA that I've seen have been a big feature the last couple of days?
1: Yeah, crazy, haven't they? I think maybe I'll save that treat for later. Welcome to Investment Uncut.
0: An investment uncut. We cut through the noise when it comes to investing. We're digging deeper to try and bring clarity to your investment decisions. I'm Dan Mikulskis,
1: and I'm Mary Spencer. Investment Uncut is brought to you by the investment team at LCP. LCP provide investment advice to some of the largest institutional investors in the UK including pension funds, wealth managers, and sovereign funds. Find out more at lcp.uk.com.
0: So on today's podcast episode, we're delighted to welcome LCP partner Steve Hodder for a discussion of all things private credit. Steve, welcome to the show. Brilliant. Thanks both for having me.
1: Steve, would you like to just give a bit more detail about your role at LCP?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, I'm a partner in the investment practice here, I advise a range of institutional investors on their strategies, so pension funds, charities, companies. But with a big chunk of my time, I also lead part of our research on private credit assets, which is, I think, what we're going to talk about today. So glad to be here.
0: Cool. And Steve, before we get into it, why don't you tell us one thing we should know about you that we won't find on your LinkedIn profile?
2: Okay. So... I've been told this is interesting, but please excuse me if it's not. I'm a keen golfer, which isn't that rare in our industry, but I have had two holes in one and they've both been from over two hundred yards, which I think is pretty rare. More lighthearted. I'm also a proud co custodian of a twelve year old orange Pomeranian called Coco. <laughs> is that kind of
0: a dog? Yeah,
1: that's kind a of. Dog. Yeah, kind yeah. of. Just about. <laughs> kind of a dog, yeah.
0: Okay, fine. Cool. All right. Great. Well, Steve, I suppose private credit then. I mean, for people that aren't maybe so familiar with that, perhaps you give us some background on how that's emerged as an asset class and what it generally sort of consists of.
2: Yeah, sure. So, I mean, it's quite a loose term, so it covers lots of different things. And it's an asset class that's been around, certainly in the States, longer than it has been in Europe. They've had a longer association with it. But in Europe in particular, it's mostly emerged since the global financial crisis. So I imagine we're all familiar with what happened then. But one of the key themes was that banks were suddenly under a huge amount of pressure to control their balance sheets. Lots of the finance that they provided the economy, particularly sort of middle-sized companies, they suddenly had to pull out of. Those businesses still needed to finance. So what happens in markets when supply goes away? Well, someone else steps in to provide that supply so we saw sort of the three four five years after the financial crisis we saw lots of investments being made in that space typically originally it was what we call direct lending so this is simply big pools of money stepping in and lending directly to these businesses and getting really great yields doing that because there isn't much competition but it also then starts to cover i guess what starts to happen when those direct lending loans go wrong we've now got sort of what we call a private market loan universe as there's lots of lending going on it's all private deals it's, it's not liquid traded. So that creates interesting features and opportunities for other managers around the edges as well.
1: From an investor's perspective, why would you invest in private credit? I guess, what's the attraction?
2: You have to ask yourself because it's less liquid than other investments. So you only do it for a reason. Back in 2009-10, you did it because you thought you could get maybe three times as much return as from liquid markets. So as I say, back then, there was a real lack of supply if you were geared up and able to join the party on the lending side, you could get a far better return than from other areas. And that holds true now. I think there are lots of things that aren't true about investment markets and where you can make returns. But one that is, is that if you're investing in more complicated and illiquid areas, there aren't as many investors who can do that. So if you're a long-term institutional investor, like a pension fund, that's one of your main competitive advantages. You can go and understand a tricky asset class. You can take the time and give them the money for a long period of time to be able to go into it and you get paid more because there aren't as many like you can do that.
1: And when you say a long time, Steve, what sort of time frame are we talking about here?
2: Yeah, so most of these funds are set up over sort of a five to seven year time frame. So that's designed to mirror the types of loans they're doing. If you were to invest in direct lending fund in particular, you'd commit something to a manager, say 10 million quid, and say, here you go, go and invest that on our behalf. And that would get pulled with a load of other investors. They'd spend a couple of years making all the loans. Typically, those loan terms might be sort of three, four, five years. And then as those loans are repaying back to them, they give you your money back. It's what we call a closed-ended structure, sort of a couple of years of them taking the money and investing it, a couple of years, three years, paying it back to you. And then they retain the right to extend it a bit more than that. So if a loan's taking longer to repay, they want to make sure they've got the flexibility to, to get the right outcome for their investors. You need to be comfortable that what you're committing in this area might stay locked up for sort of
0: five to seven years. And that point you made about illiquidity is a crucial one, isn't it? I mean, fundamentally, if you're as an investor, if you're locking up your money, you want to get paid more returns. That's the plain and simple, isn't it? And I, I do find it interesting. I mean, often in the industry, we're sort of guilty of referring to this as illiquid credit which is obviously true, but I always find it slightly strange to define something by what it's not. In other words, defining something that is not liquid is not not that really helps people that much in terms of the definition.
1: I guess the other thing on liquidity is how you look at it, because you're absolutely right. You can't sell these things if you want to two years in, but they also, these are loans, aren't they? So what they give you is income. So actually, from a liquidity perspective, if what you need is income, but you don't need all your assets back, this can be quite a nice fit for liquidity needs.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's one of the real value adds that you have as a sort of long-term investor that doesn't need all your money in the next couple of years that by building a portfolio quite cleverly, you can isolate five ten fifteen percent of your assets and say well actually i'm pretty confident i'm not going to need those and as you say mary whilst the loans are, are ongoing borrowers are paying a yield and that flows back to you as the investor so it's very manageable and i mean look we've done this with done this with probably hundreds of schemes over the past seven years and, and everyone's thought very hard about liquidity. it's it's a risk that everyone knows about. Everyone's very careful before taking on a liquid investments, but right level of analysis and understanding your projections and everything else. It's something that most investors have, have got very comfortable with as soon
0: as you start taking those steps. The point you made a second ago about the structure of these funds, I think is quite important. As I guess a lot of the funds that our clients invest in are either daily or monthly dealing or open-ended. So at any given time you can put in a redemption request, you can get your assets back. It might take a month. It might take a, a few weeks but that's pretty much how a lot of these things operate. What you described there, obviously, is this closed-ended fund. It's a much longer-term commitment of capital. So the manager then, once they've done their fundraise, they've raised the amount they want, they've then got really good sight that that capital is going to be committed to them for a number of years. And that presumably gives them, gives them a license or ability to invest in a way quite different to what other managers are able to do.
2: Yeah. And that's the key point, Dan, that these managers, they're looking for inefficiencies in markets. They're looking for difficult situations sometimes where there aren't that many natural providers of capital. So they need to make sure that they can provide that capital, that they can be patient in the situation and that's really their advantage. So the fund structure that's illiquid in some way, it wouldn't work without it. If a manager came along and said, we're going to go and do these deals and you can have daily liquidity, I'm not rating that fund because they can't offer daily liquidity. So actually that fund structure is what allows them To get into a situation where other credit investors are having to sell because they offer liquidity to their investors and the investors want the money back and our guys can be patient and can say well actually no i can afford to take a two to three year view on this i know that this asset maturing in three years is makes the bond today really really cheap and unlike many others in this market i can afford to sit tight and write it out so actually yeah by giving the manager that extra constraint on your money and therefore lessening one of the constraints in how they operate that's what really unlocks a lot of the more interesting investments. And You
1: talked about sort of the more interesting investments and you said sort of in your first sort of description of this asset class that this started with sort of direct lending and now it's we're now at the stage where maybe some of those loans aren't going so well can you just maybe talk about how market dynamics have changed over time and where we're sitting today?
2: Yeah so I mean the direct lending market evolved we're we used to character arcs, you watch any show on Netflix and it's kind of the rise and then the maturity and then the fall. But I mean, direct lending is a market that at its start was purely based on there being a big imbalance between the supply of lending and the demand for borrowing. Now, that meant that the early investors in there got a great deal. They were lending at huge yields for the risk involved and that's never going to last. Other managers then see what's going on, say, well, we can do that too. New managers get set up. Loads and loads of capital flowed into that over sort of the first half of of the last decade. So that meant that yields came down. It didn't go to a level where we thought, oh, no, this is now crazy. Why are people lending at those levels? But they were less over-attractive. And the other thing that changed quite a lot is that covenants started to weaken. So covenants might not be a term that everyone's aware of, but it's a key term in credit markets. And it's basically the rights that the lender retains. So if I lent you money, Mary, for you to go and build a house or something, I would write into the terms that you are going to build a house with it. And if you decide to build a house in a stupid place on a bog in a marshland, then I might say, no, I'm vetoing that. All those kinds of protections that allow me to make sure you're being sensible with my money. And again, in a market where there were very few lenders, the lenders could get great terms. They would have great covenant terms that said, as soon as your profits start to slip, we're sitting on your board. We've got the right to replace your management team. We've got the right to change how you run your business now we've got lots more other lenders joining the party well in order to get deals away they're starting to lessen those and actually over the past few years we've got to a place where we've seen newer lenders being a bit more sketchy and sort of how they're lending money and just sort of how few covenants they're willing to accept so it's become less attractive sort of over the past few years that
0: direct lending space this seems like a key point, isn't it? The flows of assets into, into these asset classes. I was looking at some data the other day from, I think it was from Prequin, saying that about a hundred billion pounds of money has flowed into private debt per year for about the last five or six years. And yeah, even The Economist has written up number of articles citing some of the big US private equity firms are now doing almost as much in private debt as they are in, in private equity. So I guess I'm pretty sure once you get to that stage, it's no longer really a new idea, right? That suddenly has, that still has these massive inefficiencies in it. Is that fair? Yeah. And it doesn't mean it's now a bad idea.
2: So the market has established and there is a lot more money in it than there was originally. As I said, near the start, this was a market that was present in the US ahead of the financial crisis, but never really kicked off in Europe, just the way it was. The banks provided the lending in Europe. The banks absented that space and haven't massively come back. So, yes, there's a lot more money lending. It's I think it's become a less, it was a very attractive market for a while. it's started to normalize a bit and it's behaving more like a normal credit market.
1: And in today's environment where credit markets are looking potentially, there's lots of risks, I guess, around what does that mean for this
2: sort of space? It's kind of good for direct lenders in the sense that we're returning a little bit back to how things were when that market first happened. So there are fewer funds being raised. There are more borrowers who are desperate to borrow. And if I'm a lender, if I'm basically acting as a bank, what I want is that my capital is in high demand and companies are really desperate to get hold of it. Now, what we've seen over the COVID-19 crisis is that Somewhat remarkably, the, the huge companies who lend AAA-rated corporate credit have actually lent it as cheaply as they were in February, following all the stimulus that's happened from, from governments. But those SME-type companies are, are definitely finding it harder to find cash. So if they're now more desperate and I'm the guy with the cash to lend, that improves my conditions. I've got to be really careful with it. I've got to make sure I'm finding the right businesses with the right security. Potentially, it makes it more interesting. But where I think things are really interesting now is what we call sort of more opportunistic managers. So that's some might know as distressed type approaches. Now those guys, rather than generally initiating or lending, making new deals, they're typically picking up debt that's already been in place. So a company that borrowed three years ago, whether it's from corporate bond market, whether it's from the loan market, whether it's from bank debt, a deal that's now started to creak. So a business that maybe had a certain level of leverage two years ago, which was fine. And they're now shut for six months and are struggling to service all that debt. Debt that's typically then being sold off by other holders. And as we were talking earlier, one of the key advantages is that these managers can take that long-term view, be patient, whereas lots of other debt holders can't. And we saw in March and April a lot of debt being sold at very silly prices because things like CLOs and other sort of debt owners just had to get rid of it. And those opportunistic managers step in in those situations, buy the debt at a discount that's much greater than it needs to be, and then have the patience, drive restructurings, do whatever they need to do to exit
0: that with good return. It sounds like the worry here, I suppose, is there's a fine line between being a white knight and rescuing a business and being a loan shark who comes in extracting too much interest, right? And it feels like a time like this, that line is never finer. So how do you see that sort of panning out with these managers?
2: I mean, it's a good point, And it's certainly something that any investor should be aware of before getting into anything like this. You need to understand what these managers are doing with your money. And yes, there are certainly funds, managers, operators in this type of space who deserve the sort of vulture type term. I think where we try and draw the line is that it's one thing or a vulture type fund would generally be looking at any type of business where they think by buying the credit investments, perhaps unwelcomely restructuring things, kicking everyone else out, stripping the business down, selling the assets, they can make a good return. And they don't care whether that business was actually fine at the outset, whether it needed that restructuring or not. One thing that's quite common to the managers we work with is that generally the businesses they're getting involved with need a restructuring. They're not able to do it themselves, otherwise they would have done it. Often they're coming to the managers themselves, the management team is saying, right, we've ended up here, we've got this much debt, we've got this equity, we face a short-term downturn, our leverage has gone from eight times to 15 times, we've got to deal with this, we know you guys know what you're doing, we know you've got capital, we know you can insert it into the system and help us sort this and fix this, let's get something done. So actually most of the time our managers, we're happy as sort of acting to drive a restructuring that needs to happen. Of course, they're making sure they're getting paid for it. They're making sure their investors are getting rewarded. And they're not charities. You wouldn't invest with them if they were.
0: You can say there's a lot of risk in backing a tricky turnaround, right? A lot of turnarounds just don't work and debt holders could lose a lot of money. So I guess that's the flip side, isn't it? They've, They've got to figure out what they think the fair interest rate is for that. Yeah.
1: It sounds like from the description you've just given that this is a really specialist area. So what kinds of people become opportunistic credit managers?
2: They come from all kinds of backgrounds. I think a bigger proportion of them than you might guess are lawyers by trade. So as with all credit work, the legalities of the contracts are key. Often the deals hinge on what security is included within which bond issuance and that sort of stuff. And poring over those hundreds of pages of documents and figuring out the truth of the situation is often the most important part. And we talk about efficient, inefficient markets. I think Having the expertise and and patience and time and resourcing to do that over thousands of different potential deals is one of the things that gives these managers an edge. They don't go into a deal not knowing things about it. They know everything about the situation and where their contracts lie and where their legalities lie. And often where they make a return is spotting what others might have overlooked. So lots of lawyers involved, lots of sort of former bankers, private equity type people who is operating in that sphere. They have important networks across banking and PE and other things. So lots of people from those backgrounds.
0: Yeah, it's true that some of the big US private equity firms have built out pretty big private debt arms. I guess that's no coincidence, I think is what you're saying, because it's got similar skill sets potentially there, a little bit of accessing some of the research and, and some of the expertise
2: yeah and that's a really good point on accessing the research so one case i was talking to a manager a couple of days ago about what it all hinged on was that they knew the business it was a sort of privately held business they knew it really well because they'd lent to it for 10 years in one of their sort of safer credit funds sort of targeting quite a low return but they were in the management team they had all the information they were able to underwrite the situation very quickly so when things started changing in late march and that debt suddenly looked like a really interesting opportunity for the opportunistic strategy. Clearly they've got a conflict to manage because they're involved in different places, but they've got access to all the information. Things were trading down, others were looking to sell. They were able to write up the business case to beta and make the deal in a few hours. If you're coming to that cold as a specialist manager, but one without a big network and a big data set, then there's no hope in hell that you're getting through all that documentation in time to make that deal. So. Having a business that has lots of different touch points in different places and teams that you can cross information around can be really important in this situation.
1: So it sounds like the sort of deals in the opportunistic space, sort of the evolution of those deals and the way that they're structured is relatively different to the direct lending idea that we sort of started with. Do you find that managers typically are in both of those spaces or do they tend to be specialists in one of the areas, not so much the other?
2: Yeah, very much specialists in their own area. It's a very loose term, what we call opportunistic credit. It covers a whole load of different approaches because there's lots of different complicated things going on. But one thing we always look for is managers to be specialists in, in quite a tight area. You can't be good at everything in this space. It relies on your expertise. It relies on your networks and your experience. It is unrealistic to think one manager will be good at everything. So some managers will effectively operate like those direct lenders, but they'll focus on really complicated situations where that supply demand imbalances is, is even greater than usual. So it might be direct lending to a business that everyone else finds very difficult to underwrite what the tangible assets are. But if this manager knows that industry really well, has a better legal understanding of the situation and is able to underwrite it, well, suddenly they're charging 12 13% on the loan, not six or sevens because no one else is there. So some of them are sort of originating direct lending, but in, in niche areas. Whereas other managers will focus solely on trading and restructuring liquid bonds. So some managers focus on massive companies that have debt on liquid markets, go and buy up a huge chunk of that debt, become the primary debt holder, get everyone else on board, leave a restructuring, all all that kind of classic stuff. But yeah, we look for specialists who are good at what they do and, and stick to what they're
0: good at. Why don't you give us a flavour of of what's actually in some of these portfolios then? I mean, how many bonds would we expect to see in a typical portfolio? What the sort of geographical spreads and industries and sectors would would you expect to see?
2: Yeah, so a typical portfolio, they're quite concentrated, maybe 20 to 30 different positions. So this is very labour intensive work. So there's no way you can go out and get involved in a thousand situations in one fund. The other thing is you, you want them to be concentrated because companies that are that bonds are trading cheap, 9 out of 10 of them, they're trading cheap for a reason. So you don't want a manager, even if it was feasible, to go out and almost invest in this passively and buy everything. You need that manager to be very selective. One key thing we look for in managers is generating a huge volume of potential investments, but only investing in 1 in 10 or 1 in 20 of them. So they end up with quite concentrated portfolios. Geographies, again, look for specialisms. Some managers operate pan, Atlantic and sort of cover the US and Europe. The majority focus on one or the other. So we'll have managers that only really operate in the US have managers that operate across Europe, managers that specialize in sort of some emerging market regions or whatever. But by building a number of different funds in combination for an investor, get a good spread of different approaches. And then sector wise, I mean, it depends on where we are in the economic cycle, because these guys are looking for sectors that are facing a bit of challenge that's why there's an opportunity for them they really like sectors where there are hard tangible assets so they try and avoid investing in very cyclical businesses that don't really have tangible assets and are very reliant on sort of future business projections because they're credit guys they want to see an illegal contract that they've got rights over something that means something they're not speculating against potential future growth of a startup so old school, asset rich industries. At the moment, talking about I mean, energy, you can't get away from energy. Energy is in huge distress with everything that's going on with the oil price. And as with anything in the volumes of distress, there will be some interesting nuggets buried in there. Retail is a really interesting one. We see some managers in the sort of retail sector who are finding interesting things to do, but obviously you've got to be super careful. And I mean, services, I was talking about a deal of a nursery provider. So a good leading business was absolutely fine three months ago. Clearly now is facing a huge pressure because they're shut for three months at least. So that's a really good example because in effect, what happens when this happened, all nurseries are shut tomorrow. No one knows what's going to happen. Big panic sell-off. Lots of investors don't want anything to do with it. I'm not taking a view on when this nursery will be open again. Could be years. Whereas actually our manager was involved in the situation already, knew the management team very well, knew the private equity owner of the business, had a strong view on the situation that actually nurseries are going to be the first thing to come back. The government are going to be so incentivized to get economies open. They need people to have their children in nurseries. It's something that is an essential service. And actually they felt the bond had been hugely oversold. That bond had traded down to sort of 70% of its full value and and it's traded back to 90% already. So it felt like they took a good view on that quite quickly.
1: That was a manager that I guess was already, when we're talking about the sort of closed-ended fund, that's a manager that the fund was already up and running. They were able to call on some committed assets pretty quickly to exploit these opportunities. And I guess where we're looking today, and there's been a lot of volatility, dislocation, worry within markets. Have you seen a lot of managers start opening or fundraising for new funds now?
2: It's been hard to get off the phone some days with the number of managers who are coming to market with new dislocation funds. Some of them are managers we know already and the right ones to be doing this. Some are sort of coming to the party without much experience of doing this before. So you've got to be really careful in that regard. But yes, lots of managers raising one-off funds. Managers that raise funds every three years, typically, we're seeing them deploy capital quicker and maybe pulling forward when they're raising the new fund. But there's a good range of managers that we like who are raising capital right now. In terms of timings, I mean... You might think, well, that temporary dislocation, all that market panic is behind us now. That was mid-March. We're in June now. Has this passed? The point I make on that is that some of those temporary trading opportunities like that nursery business, yeah, that's happened. That's done. That was in the portfolio. It's gone. But lots of the less liquid, more difficult situations I think are still to come. They take years to pan out. These are really difficult situations to unpick. The current investors take a long time in some cases to sort of realize and accept the loss and get rid so there are lots of stickier situations which will take a long time to come through.
0: I mean, we've seen that a bit already haven't we I mean I think it was in papers just recently Debenhams is one example I think that's been owned by a number of these private credit houses for a while that's obviously been a process that's been ongoing I think for years in terms of trying to work out that business so I imagine there'll be other cases like that.
2: Yeah and I think yeah they're a business I think their administration now for the second time in two years it's going to take a long time for those investors to get through and unpick it but I'm not overly familiar with the balance sheet structure there, but I imagine there are some debt holders who are looking for a chance to get out at some point, and it might make sense for some new managers to get involved and start driving that restructuring. But yeah, that's a classic example of a business that maybe doesn't have a huge future in the economy. I mean, we all know what's going on with retail and where we might be going, but at the prices it's been traded at with the underlying
0: assets it's got, actually, there's still quite good returns to be made, I think. And that speaks to the risk of the whole asset class, doesn't it, really? Because like you say, when you're buying bonds that are trading so cheaply, it could be that there's a turnaround to be had if you get it right, or it could also be that it's in an industry that's just dying and it's never going to work. So that's at the core of the risk there, isn't
2: it? Yeah, it's the core of the risk. And I think, again, one thing I like about credit investing is you kind of know at the outset what your scenarios are, what might happen. If I'm buying debt, if a business has 100 million of debt, I'm buying it at 30 million. And I know that there are tangible hard assets that even in a bad scenario are worth 20. most I can lose is 10. My downside is kind of known. If I'm buying the debt at 30 million and the par value is 100 million and I can force myself into owning all the equity too, well, my upside scenarios are very, very interesting. It doesn't take much of a recovery for me to be exiting back near par at a huge multiple. And I think that's what I like about the opportunistic end of the credit spectrum. It almost turns things around. If you're buying high quality credit at par hoping to get a two percent yield the asymmetry works against you the most you can get is two percent the worst that can happen is you lose everything this way around it can be actually the worst that can happen is i lose a bit because i bought it so cheap but the best that can happen is huge uncapped
0: upside yeah i guess that's a good point is i mean these equity like returns i suppose it's worth saying isn't it that's probably the best way of thinking about it is how we'd characterize the expected returns from this
2: yeah so managers target sort of anywhere between 10 and 20%, depending on their strategy, per annum returns. So, pretty punchy stuff. As ever, you've got to take any manager's target with a pinch of salt. They're they're a combination of what they think they can do and also how they feel they need to market themselves and everything else. So, we're not sat here expecting every manager to hit 20%. So, centrally, we kind of view this as as a way to try and get equity like returns. So, maybe six, seven, eight percent per annum. But in this environment, in an environment like this, history suggests that on, on average, these managers should be meeting their targets or exceeding them. So I wouldn't be surprised if we see much higher returns from these types of strategies than from equity markets.
0: Yeah how about the uh, sort of responsible investing considerations here and these i mean if, obviously if we're talking about equities you're normally thinking in terms of the votes that you've got and then the way you're trying to steer companies using those votes and with obviously with credit you don't normally have that but you mentioned in some of these situations they might be getting on company boards and those sort of things so how how are these managers thinking about how they sort of steer environmental and social kind of considerations and
2: yeah so they haven't got the same influence in terms of voting but most of these situations, they have quite a strong influence if they're the largest or even the sole debt holder of the business. If they're sitting on covenants that allow them to change management, if they're not happy with how things are going, then obviously they've got quite a strong power there too. I think the other thing on, on ESG and responsible investing that I'd say is that it's almost inherent in good credit work that what you're looking to do before you lend to a company or before you buy their debt is to ensure that you've got every possible downside risk covered. There's no way you want to end up owning the debt and then find out the business is poorly run or has some bad environmental practices that are going to cost them lots of money. It's just a decent credit manager is not getting that far without uncovering those types of issues so five years or so ago when this became a much more talked about topic, we started talking to managers in in a lot more depth about responsible investment and it took them a while before they finally said, "Well, actually, hold on a sec, this is what we do anyway we've been doing this for years. It took them a while to work out the glossy ways to present it to everyone and come up with a nice sounding case studies. But I'd say responsible investment is just good credit work.
1: So Steve, it sounds like there's, if anything, more opportunities, more options than ever for investors. So if if someone's listening to this podcast and they're thinking, this sounds like a really good idea, but there's about 100 different managers that I could choose from and they're all very niche. And what are the sort of key things we look for in managers across the board and how clearly we do, well, you do lots of research every day on this, but there are going to be managers that have such specialisms that you can't possibly be an expert on the stuff they're investing in. How do we sort of see through that and ask the right questions to get to the right managers?
2: Yeah, so we've got, as with all our research, we've got a we've got a thorough sort of score sheet and written up work on sort of what we look for in these managers. And there's a few key themes to that, which I can run through. So experience is probably point one. There was no way we're getting involved with managers who are doing this for the first time. You need to be able to see and hear in great detail about them at the coalface and what they've done before. It goes hand in hand with the next one, which is the right networks resourcing. In this space, it's critical that they have access to the information they need and a good manager in this space has built, has spent years, if not decades, building up all of that resource, the right people on the team, the right experience, the connections of different banks. A lot of this involves situations where they get in because someone needs to transact quickly and they need a reliable partner who they know they're going to deliver. And they're on the phone to the people they know that they've done it before for the past 20 years. So it is one of those industries where that's really important. We look for very good, well resourced analyst teams. We like analyst teams that specialise. We want a good bank of legal analysts and, and credit analysts that know their particular niches and work very hard on particular deals. One key piece of information is what type of fund size they're looking to raise. It's one of the big conflicts in in asset management that The bigger funds you raise as a manager, the more fees you get paid. But in this type of space in particular, that extra billion you've just raised, that extra 2 billion, I was talking earlier about how important it is to be selective in what investments you make. If you get greedy and start raising bigger and bigger funds, it's only going to make it harder for you to be selective and stick to the best investments. So we look for strong discipline in managers raising the right size funds for the markets that they play in.
1: And so, Steve, just to sort of as our final point, what kind of investors do we find investing in this sort of stuff?
2: It's not every investor we come across. It's important to work out whether you're the right investor for this or not. They tend to be investors that have a few things in common. They have a need or they're looking for quite strong returns. Ultimately, if you're an investor who who only needs very low returns, I think this is a great opportunity, but there's a lot of risks involved, so don't bother, don't take on those risks. They need to have a fairly long-term outlook. We've talked at some length about that, that being able to take a longer term view and be able to lock up your money for a number of years, at least, is a key part of why this works full stop. So you need to be able to say, well, actually, if I can't get any of this money back for seven years, that's not going to be an issue to me. So they tend to be, whether it's sovereign wealth funds, whether it's charities, whether it's larger pension funds, those types of investors are all over this type of stuff. And I guess the final point is size of investor. I mean, The managers typically have sort of lower investment limits, and you definitely want a blend of different managers. You want to try and achieve a sort of team of specialists, if you like. So you do need to be of a sort of certain level of investment to be able to commit enough to this to make it work.
0: Fine. okay then, Steve. Well, that's been a great chat. As we're winding up, perhaps you could tell the listeners where they can find you, where they can get hold of your thoughts and things that you write.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So I'm on LinkedIn, Steve Hodder on LinkedIn, working for LCP. I'm sure you can find me quite easily. I've got an experts page on the LCP website too. So anything I'm writing about, anything I'm involved with will be on those channels. Feel free to drop me a message on LinkedIn or send me an email.
1: And Steve, just to finish, we ask all our guests this question, what do you think is the most underappreciated thing about investing?
2: So I would say it's focusing on the facts and not getting sucked into the story. I think one reason I like credit investing is it's generally pretty fact-based. You're looking at a situation, you're understanding the facts, and you're working out what's going on. Other parts of investment markets, I've heard so many good stories in either direction on the price of either any particular stock. And you, you hear both and you think, well, they both sound great. So the price is probably about right. People love stories, right? People are great storytellers. That's what people buy into. doesn't necessarily mean that
0: that you're going to make much money out of it. It's a great point to finish on. Well, Steve, thank you so much for your time today. That's been a great conversation. Thanks for coming on. Brilliant. Thanks. all.
1: That's all we've got time for. Thank you very much for listening in. Please tune in again next week for another episode of Investment Uncut. Our podcast is for information and marketing purposes only and does not constitute any form of investment or financial advice. For more information, please refer to our marketing privacy policy on the LCP website.